Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. This morning I will be reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 to 23. He disarmed the rulers and authorities put him to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in, de- in detail <clears throat> about visions puffed up without reason by his sen- sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. But uh, I am, I, again, I'm so thankful that you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, right now, I am uh, <clears throat> currently on a history kick. Um, as I've been uh, preparing for uh, this church history class, I've been really diving into it and really enjoying it, and I've been studying a lot about the, uh, the Roman Empire specifically, because that's one of, the, one of the primary settings of the uh, New Testament church, and, and even the early church after the New Testament was written. And one of the things that, uh, that you kind of find out about as you're studying uh, Roman history is that back during the time of the Roman Empire, there was this goal. Right? There was this ideal of a unified and peaceful Roman Empire. And they actually believed they, that they achieved this peace, which is uh, kind of a, the translation of that is Roman peace. Roman peace. Lasting roughly from 90 BC to 180-ish AD, even though there are some historians that kind of stretch that period of time from 31 BC all the way to 250 AD. So somewhere in between those times. But whatever the official dates are, there's a historian by the name of Walter Gofart who uh, kind of disagrees with Rome's own self-assessment of this so-called peace that they achieved within the Roman Empire. And he says that especially during the years of 70 A.D. to 192 uh, A.D., peace is not really what you actually find on the pages of history, of Roman history specifically. But what you do see is a lot of tyranny and bloodshed and warfare. You see a lot of that. But interestingly enough, the Romans believed that it was actually through this warfare and through this bloodshed that the Pax Romana was and is achieved. It's how it is brought about. And so for them, peace was not to be found in making treaties with existing and neighboring nations, kind of agreeing to coexist alongside of each other, but rather it was to be achieved by beating their rivals into submission. That was kind of their version of bringing peace, forcing them to be compliant with Roman rule, and then allowing them to enjoy their new identity as Roman citizens while going back to a somewhat normal life. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Now, when a Roman general would conquer a new city or territory in pursuit of extending this Pax Romana, the conquering general would take the deposed ruler of that area, even maybe portions of that army that, uh, that surrendered, and he would parade them through the city, making their defeat known to all and making the victory of Rome known to all. And the purpose of this, of this procession was to humiliate the loser and to glorify the winner. Now, I tell you all of this background because, again, that's, that's the background of what's going on in the world at the time that this letter to the Colossian church was written. All right? that's, that's kind of the setting. That's what's going on. 
And this idea of a conquering general of the Pax Romana is the language that is actually used by Paul in our opening verse today. He kind of borrows that language a little bit. It is the language of victory in Christ. And we will see what that victory means for us as we hear accusations from the enemy later in our passage this morning and how we don't have to listen to those accusations. But before we take a look at it, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, God, for giving us this new day where we have received, as, as we sang, or as, as Ethan mentioned earlier, where we received these, these new mercies, God. You, you gave us breath in our lungs this morning. You, Lord, you allowed our hearts to take more beats. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, God. We thank you for our life. We thank you, God, that you have sent your Son to save us. And so, Father, this morning I pray, God, that you guide us through your Spirit in our passage. Lord, there are, there are portions of this passage that can be kind of confusing and, uh, and, and we're not really sure exactly, Lord, how to handle them at times. But Father, I pray where, where there is any confusion, Lord, I pray that, pray that your spirit brings clarity and wisdom and that we can hold on to the truth that you would have us to hold on to this morning. And so, Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, or even maybe your device that you have your Bibles on, open them up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. That's where we're going to be starting this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And it begins by saying, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now, I want us to kind of go back a step uh, a moment to fully understand what is happening here again. I don't want us to lose the context of this entire passage. Last week, we ended by seeing how Jesus took our record of debt that we owed to God because of sin, a, a record of debt that was impossible for us to pay off on our own, and he canceled it. He canceled it nailing it to the cross where Jesus paid for each and every one of our sins, past, present, and future, so that we could be forgiven and justified before God. Now, not only did Jesus pay for our sinful debt on the cross, that's not the only thing he did on the cross, he actually, on the cross, where he was most humiliated, he actually also accomplished a great victory, a wonderful victory. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, Verse 15, our beginning passage of the day, says that he, and I believe he is actually referring to God the Father here, God the Father took the rulers and authorities, meaning he took the legion of fallen angels, the demons, and Satan, and he first disarmed them. Utterly disarmed them. Now, you may be asking the question, what weapons did they have? What weapons did these rulers and authorities, these, these demonic forces, have? What arms did they possess that God disarmed them of? Well, first and foremost, they lost their power to accuse Christians before God. You see, before the cross, before we place faith in Jesus, Satan could whisper in our ears and accuse us of all the sin that we have ever committed. He could remind us and torture us and manipulate us with the state of our spiritual deadness. And he could lie to us by telling us there is no hope. Or even possibly by influencing us to seek salvation in people and places other than Jesus Christ. But in Christ, through his work on the cross, friends, we've been, we've been completely and totally forgiven of all sin, right? Of all of it. We have been given the gift of salvation, which means there is no longer anything that the devil, whose name in Greek is diablos, which means accuser or slander, there's nothing that the devil has to accuse us of anymore. Nothing. We've been forgiven. All of our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. The primary weapon used by the enemy to keep us chained down has been forcibly stripped from him by the Father through the cross of the Son. And so as you and I stand in victory over these rulers and authorities that seek to accuse us and slander us and tell us there is no hope, we don't have to listen. We don't have to listen to it. 
We stand in victory. We no longer have to listen to the lies that they spew in our ears. That we are still guilty. That we, that we should be living in shame. And what is so sweet and satisfying is that not only did God the Father, through the work of Jesus, disarm the enemy, but he also put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And again, the language that is used here by Paul is that of a victorious general parading the defeated enemy through the streets in a, in a procession of triumph. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus shamed the enemy. He, he embarrassed them because while the cross appeared to be a victory for them, the resurrection proved that it was in the cross that Jesus guaranteed the downfall of Satan, the downfall of his demons, and even death itself. How amazing is that? The cross became a visible image of their defeat. That's incredible, right? The height of the humiliation of God the Son dying as a curse on the tree, stripped, beaten, and scorned, and mocked because of the means of his, or became the means of his victory and the means of Satan and death's downfall. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, even though the enemy still has limited power now, right? And even though we Christians will still struggle against them in this life, as Ephesians 6 clearly says, we can rest easy knowing that they are in their death throes. They are in their death throes. They live every day knowing that their ultimate defeat has been assured. It's been assured. That they are fighting a losing battle against God and His children. That's a promise that we can hold on to. Now, my high school soccer team, kind of switching up a little bit, that's quite the segue, right? My high school soccer team was horrific. It was, they, were, they were terrible. It was mostly me and I think two or three other guys who I think have even touched a soccer ball before, even played soccer before. And so we played game after game where the other team would just rack up the score and it was, it was awful. It was not the funnest experience I've ever had. And one game I remember, the opposing team actually scored nine goals before halftime. And in soccer, that's a lot. That's a lot of goals. Never watched soccer before. That's embarrassing. Now, imagine playing that game. Imagine you're me playing that game. The team you are playing against is an arsenal of players that are impossibly better than, than your entire team put together. The score is 9-0. The halftime whistle has just been blown. And you, guess what? You still have to play the other half. You can't just stop. You can't just leave. You have to keep playing. It's awful. I hated every second of it. It was frustrating. It was humiliating. Now imagine that. Imagine that feeling but on a cosmic scale. And you can somewhat begin to imagine the humiliation of the enemy. They are playing a game that they are destined to lose. And they have no weapons that can do us any true harm. And the arsenal that we are given by the Holy Spirit to fight against them is quite literally infinitely better than any of the fiery darts that they have to throw against us. Praise God for that. One commentator said that through Jesus' death for sinners, Satan was robbed of his power to intimidate and control people through the threat of death and separation from God. The struggle with Satan and his demons will not see its conclusion until the Lord's return in glory, but the devil's power is broken. It's broken. As Martin Luther sang, Lo, his doom is sure. As Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 wonderfully says, since the children of God, you and I, or sorry, since the children, you and I, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, meaning Jesus, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so not only do we not have to fear the devil and his demons, we don't even have to fear death. We don't have to fear it. The number one fear in this world is death itself. You know, some may say it's public speaking. 
which, you know, hey, I, I'm terrified of that too. But everyone is afraid of death. But we don't have to be. Death is not the end for us. Our eternal life has already started. Do you know that? You, you have eternal life in Christ, and you're living it now. And so when you die, it's not the end. We do not have to fear death at all. Now, one last quote, because I think this truth is so wonderful. John Calvin said, For there is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated, as is the gallows on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, nay, more, has utterly trodden them under his feet. And that's a good truth, isn't it? What a good truth that is. That truth should bring a wealth of peace into your hearts. Now, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that was a false peace. It wasn't, wasn't a true peace. It was a peace predicated on human beings, and therefore it was destined to fail. And as we all know, the Roman Empire did fall. And it fell in a bloody and dramatic fashion. But the peace achieved through Christ through your new citizenship, not in Rome, not in the United States, but in the kingdom of God, is a peace that can and does transcend all others. Because while you may outwardly experience trials and tribulations, there is no enemy, whether it be people in this world, whether it be demons or illnesses, addictions, depression, anxiety, even death, that can change the fact that you, believer, again, have eternal life and have victory in Christ over all of those things. That is what brings true peace. That's what brings true peace into our hearts. And if you want peace in your life, then meditate, think, dwell, pray about, live in that beautiful reality. And then we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 4, 8, in peace I will lie down and sleep. How many, how many restless nights have we lived? Or have we, have we tried to go to sleep and all these things have kind of crammed into our minds and, and we try to just have a little bit of rest and peace, but it feels like we're, we're fighting this losing battle. Well, friends, that is, that is the enemy. That's a lie. You have victory in Christ. You know where your ultimate destiny lies, and so you can lie down at night and sleep in peace. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Friends, we are safe. We have peace, and we are victorious in Christ. All right, so now, looking at verse 16, what is the first word that you see there? Therefore. Now, anytime you see a passage that begins with the word, therefore, you must do what? And this is actually one of Ethan's favorite Bible teaching lines. I'm kind of stealing it from him. When, when you see the word, therefore, you must what? See what it's there for. That's right. Because of, because of verse, verses 9 through 15, because of those verses, because of the truths found within those verses, 9 through 15, therefore, Paul encourages us to be sure of verses 16 and following. So Paul is saying that because the fullness of deity is in Christ, and in Him you have been filled, given a new nature, had your sins forgiven, and now stand in victory with Him, verse 16 says, Therefore, because of that, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So Paul here is saying, in summary, because you are in Christ and because Christ is in you, do not listen. Do not care when people are telling you that you must observe the Old Covenant Jewish customs. Do, do you remember the, uh, the Judaizers that we spoke of a little bit last week? They were a group who were claiming that in order for you to be a true Christian or to be a next level Christian, you must observe the old covenant rituals and customs. Now, a big one for them was circumcision. That was, that was one of their, their main pushes, that unless you were circumcised, then you weren't a true Christian. But they didn't stop at circumcision. They also were telling these early Christians that they must observe 
the Jewish dietary customs, only, only eating and drinking what was considered to be ritually and spiritually clean. And it appears that they were also telling them that they must submit and observe the Old Covenant religious festivals. The Jewish people had a variety of festivals throughout the year that served several different religious functions, including one that was called the New Moon Sacrifices. That's what Paul's talking about here with the, with the language of New Moon, this New Moon Sacrifices, and that can be found in uh, Numbers 28 or Numbers 10, either one. Now, the people of Israel would offer a burnt offering during this New Moon Sacrifice. They would also uh, offer grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord on the New Moon of each month. It was also treated as a Sabbath, this new moon festival. It was treated as a Sabbath where all work would stop and it would be a time for the family to come together and worship. So that's what, that's what he's talking about with this new moon. <clears throat> now, when we see Sabbath here in this verse, I think we have to be clear what this particular use of Sabbath means and what it does not mean. All right? What I do not believe it means is the weekly setting apart of a day to the Lord for rest and worship. All right? That is grounded in the moral law found in the Ten Commandments that we are still called to uphold as Christians, and it is even rooted in creation itself, found in, in Genesis 1, where, uh, where God rested on the last day. Now, I also believe there are other implications that we are to keep a Sabbath every week in the New Testament, passages such as John 26, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and in Hebrews 4, uh, but we don't really have time to dig into that. But suffice it to say, I don't believe it is that Sabbath that Paul had in mind here, right? I believe what Paul is speaking of here within the context of our passage are the ceremonial Sabbaths in the Old Covenant law that are now no longer binding. These were distinct ceremonial Sabbath days at the end of festivals and ceremonies. And you can find that in Exodus 23, 10 through 11, for example, or Leviticus 23. When the Apostle Paul stated, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, I believe he had, a, had special feast days, festivals, and ceremonial Sabbaths in mind. Does that make sense? Is that, is that somewhat clear? And so Paul wants to make it obvious. He wants to make it clear to the Christians in Colossae that they are not bound to these observances. They're not bound to these festivals and rituals because they, the believers, are in Christ. Because they are in Christ. And they should not listen to those who are telling them otherwise. He explains more in verse 17. He says, these, the ceremonies and customs that we just got done talking about, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to the Lord. They are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to the Lord. And so all of those Jewish holidays and feasts had a very specific function, right? They, they served their purpose, and their purpose was to direct the gaze of the people of Israel forward. They were a shadow of the realities that would be brought forth by the Son. And so Paul is saying, why would you partake in the shadows of, uh, sorry, why would you partake in the shadow if you possess the reality? Right? You no longer have to act out the drama. You no longer have to act out the play that was meant to point you to Jesus if you are now in Jesus. He's saying, do not listen to the guys. Don't, don't listen to these guys. Don't, don't let these people judge you for something that you are not required to do by God. There is no extra merit of grace that can be earned. There is no uh, extra level of spiritual experience that can be had, no spiritual advancement to be gained by falling to the peer pressure of these charlatans and partaking in the shadows of what you already possess. It would be somewhat like buying your favorite car, right? But then fawning over a picture of it in a magazine instead of actually just going out to your garage, right? What's the point? You, you have what is in the picture. You can experience the real thing. You can, you can sit in it. You can drive it. 
There's nothing to be gained by staring at a picture when you actually have the very thing that the picture points to. That's what Paul is telling the Colossians here. Now as we move into verse 18, it is hard to tell in our passage if Paul has two separate groups of false teachers in mind or if he just has one group of false teachers in mind. Biblical scholars kind of go back and forth on it. It could be that Paul is referring to the Judaizers in verses 16 and 17 and then referring to other false teachers who are trying to synchronize various forms of pagan beliefs with Christianity in verse 18. So, so that's one possibility. It could be two different groups that Paul is talking about here. Or it could simply be that the Judaizers were also bringing other pagan philosophies into their own warped manufactured religion. So it could just be one. It, it could be either one of these options. Either way, though, whether Paul is referring to the same group or to a different group, he continues in verse 18 saying, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, Paul is saying that these Christians are to not allow anyone to disqualify them, meaning telling them that they are out of the faith, they're, they're no longer true Christians, that they are disqualified from being a Christian because they are not following this false teaching, right? Now, the teaching that Paul brings to light here is somewhat of a different flavor than in verse 16, Okay? We kind of mentioned that before, where verse 16 dealt with the Old Covenant Jewish observances. Here we see more pagan beliefs being brought in. And the first of these pagan doctrines is what is called asceticism. They were insisting that these early Christians live in ascetic lifestyle, an ascetic lifestyle. Now, asceticism comes from the Greek word humility. It essentially taught that the key to being a truly spiritual person was through depriving yourself of as many worldly comforts as possible. Now, the NASV translates asceticism as self-abasement. I think that's a pretty good translation. Self-abasement. The idea being that people willingly embrace lowliness and even suffering to enhance their appearance of piety, of being religious. And so, therefore, it is a false humility. It's a false humility. It's the kind of humility which a person proudly wears as a medal for, for being so meek and so humble, right? A really big one. I'm the most humble. I'm the most meek. Now, the core of asceticism is really found in Paul's words in verses 21 through 22. So if you want to kind of understand kind of in, in shorthand what asceticism is, just read verses 21 through 22. It is, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, meaning physical things. And so, don't do this. Keep yourself from that. You better not enjoy this over here. Be sure you don't eat and drink these things. Make sure you abstain from anything that might bring you some sort of pleasure. And so they were creating this vast variety of taboos that they said must be avoided at all costs if you want to be a true Christian, or at the very least, if you want to gain a deeper spiritual fulfillment, if you want to be a super Christian. Verse 23 also mentions a severity to the body in regards to this asceticism. Now, this could either mean uh, harsh, over-the-top fasting, not, not biblical fasting, harsh, over-the-top fasting, or even the mutilating of the flesh, which was uh, a practice in some of these pagan uh, religions around that area during this time. But at the heart of asceticism, at the heart of it, and not only asceticism, but also the list of rules that we found in verse 16, lies, lies what? Legalism legalism. That's, that's all it is. At the very, at the very core, at the, at the root of these, these uh, false teachings is legalism. The belief that outward actions and behaviors are what gain you your salvation or achieve some sort of greater spirituality or some, some greater level of holiness. 
It is the belief that God actually cares more about the external than he does about the internal. And brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't think any of you would be shocked if I told you that legalism rears its ugly head in modern day churches as well. I know, crazy, right? Who would have who thunk it? But it happens with a regular frequency. It happens all the time. A lot of you may have experiences with that. And these modern day asceticists, these legalists, sound a lot like verse 21 of our passage. Do they not? Do not handle this, do not taste, do not touch. They create their own rules that are found nowhere in Scripture, or maybe they even take principles found within Scripture, and they pull them completely out of context, and they hold others accountable to their own man-made rules. <laughs> All right. And so whether it be drinking alcohol, dancing, using, using instruments in worship, dressing a certain way on Sundays, tattoos, or a, or a host of other man-made rules, if you don't follow them, then hey, you may be disqualified. You may just not be a true Christian. But brothers and sisters, do you know what is the sworn enemy of legalism? The sworn enemy of it? It's grace. It's grace. Grace literally means unmerited favor. The gospel says that it is by the unmerited favor that God has shown us that we are saved. And not only that, but it's a work of God's grace that we grow in our faith. Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. By grace, through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even faith is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Grace stands in direct opposition to legalism and asceticism, because as one commentator notes, it undermines all of our efforts to justify ourselves. Grace runs counter to human pride and achievement because it says that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and simply try harder to gain eternal life through our works or religious observances or legalistic tendencies. Grace requires that we defer all glory to Jesus Christ. And this is why legalists have a really hard time with grace. I think this is why even believers, even if you've been a believer for years and years and years, you may still struggle with this legalistic tendency. It runs counter to human nature. It runs counter to how we believe things should operate. And yet grace is the only hope that we have for salvation. And Paul tells the Colossians, and by proxy you and I, to not let anyone disqualify you based on the graceless demands of legalism. Now, before, before you get too excited, just because we are saved by grace and grace alone, through faith alone, does not mean we therefore have a license to sin. We've got to remember that. And it does not give us a license to ignore seeking to follow the teachings and commands of Jesus. But what it does mean is that we are free from the rules of man and the claim that following them grants salvation and extra spirituality. We are free from a works-based righteousness and we are free to follow and obey Jesus His way, following His word. So in summary, asceticism and legalism, bad. All right. Next, Paul says that these false teachers will also tell you that in order to be qualified or in order to be a qualified Christian, you also must worship angels. Right? Now, I preached on this not too long ago, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But angel worship, of course, is nothing short of idolatry. The first chapter of the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of God the Son over the angels, right? They are not to be an object of worship. 
at all. They should not be prayed to, they should not be sung to, or even sought out. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to seek out angels. Nowhere. John, in the book of Revelation, found this out actually the hard way by experience, if you remember that. Do you remember, do you remember what happened with John on the island of Patmos when he received his, the revelation that we now use as the book of Revelation? He says in verse 8 and 9 of Revelation 22, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Talking about the vision that he had that makes up the book of Revelation. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, what? You must not do this. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And he ends by saying, worship God. Worship God. Not, not me. I'm a fellow servant. What are you doing? Angel worship or seeking out angels is not a gateway to growing spiritually. It's not. Rather, it is a gateway to giving your worship to created beings and not directing it to the only being worthy of praise and adoration. In short, like I said before, it's idolatry. <clears throat> so, strike two for these false teachers. Or three, depending on how you're counting. Now lastly, these wolves in sheep's clothing were apparently attempting to base everything that they taught on these visions, right? <clears throat> now here's something interesting. During this time, there was a specific pagan ritual that was used in initiating someone into the pagan religion. It kind of became in <clears throat> part of the inner pagan circle if you went through this ritual. And they were said to have uh, experienced mystical visions during this ceremony. And most biblical scholars agree that it is these visions, these particular pagan visions that Paul was speaking about here in, uh, here in uh, the book of Colossians. And these false uh, teachers were claiming that these visions were the foundation of their teaching. And because of their heightened spirituality from asceticism and because they had these grand visions, they therefore had the authority to tell other believers what they should and should not do. Because after all, how can you, how can you speak against someone who has claimed to have a vision, right? They've had this grand experience. They had a, they had a vision maybe from God, they said. So how are, you, how are you supposed to speak out against that? Especially when they go on and on about these grand visions in eloquent detail. But what does Paul say about it? He says that these religious leaders were not sources of authority, but rather that they were just a bunch of spiritual snobs. That's, that's kind of essentially what he says about them. They were puffed up and arrogant because of their sensuous mind, literally meaning fleshly mind. They were sinful men whose desire was to flatter themselves and make themselves out to be this higher class of Christian because they experienced something special that the other Christians didn't. They had an extra supernatural experience. They had these visions. And yet the apostle says they had absolutely no reason for such pride and arrogance. Now just a quick aside. Paul here is not making a blanket indictment against all visions. All right. Don't, don't see that or read that into the text. He's not making a blanket indictment against all visions. He and Peter and Ananias all had visions, right? John had a mystical visionary experience on the island of Patmos. Rather, the issue was that the visions of these false teachers were driven by their flesh and not, as Paul says in verse 19, by Christ. That was the issue. And this is very important because there are many in this world who will claim to have some sort of extravagant religious experience. Whether it be a vision or a dream or a moment of heightened emotions or a, or a, a deep sense of oneness with maybe the universe or, or with God, they will at times base everything they believe, everything that they believe about God or maybe even about the Bible based on that one or maybe two or maybe three religious experiences. For instance, if you talk to Muslims around the world, they too will speak of having visions. 
There's been many Muslim testimonies of having these grand visions where Allah has come and spoken to them directly. If you speak to those in the New Age movement, they will speak of meeting with angels or having great and powerful religious encounters. And you may even speak to some Christians who will claim to say that they too were given a vision from God or they themselves have some extraordinary religious things happen to them. But, brothers and sisters, what have we said before is the single authority to all things about and surrounding God. It's His Word. It's Scripture. It is the Word of God. If anything or anyone says anything that differs from what is found in His Word, friends, it is not a message or a vision or an experience from God. It's from either one or two sources. Maybe the sources are combined. But it is either from flesh, from their, from their own flesh, from their own sensuous mind who, who can get caught up in the moment, or it's from a demonic source. And we're told in the New Testament that Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light. How many people in the New Age movement, how many Mormons, how many, how many other people from other religions have, have expressed that they've experienced these grand visions of this, of this angel in light coming to them? A lot. Now, I am not saying here that God can't and doesn't use visions. I'm not saying that. But we must be extremely cautious. We must never take a person who said they had a vision from God at their word. But rather, we are to follow the instruction of 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 20. Which says to not quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit, but to do what? Test everything. We are to test everything and hold fast to only that which is good. That's what we're called to do. You can have the grandest of experiences, but if it is devoid of the truth found within Scripture, it is nothing more than that. It's nothing more than just an experience that is apart from Christ, if it's not in accordance to His Word. And so Paul doesn't want the Colossians to be impressed by these men, men who have had their vision, because while they may have had these intense religious experiences, the believers in Colossia, or Col uh, Colossae had Christ. They had Christ. Paul in verse 19 says that the teacher's main problem was not holding fast to the head, the head of the church, which is his body, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so I think we can, we can often have this desire in us to have these wonderful religious experiences, and those things aren't bad. It's not bad to come to a Sunday morning worship service and have your emotions heightened. But only if it's based on the truth of Scripture. And so sometimes we need to, we need to ask ourselves, what are we seeking, right? What are we seeking when we come to church even? Are we seeking this emotional high? Are you seeking this, this grand religious experience and visions to nourish you? Or are you seeking Jesus Christ? All right? Are you seeking Jesus Christ? There's this train that we're supposed to follow, right? Doxology, worship, these, this emotional experience is good, and we should, we should want that. We should want our heart to be warmed and filled with exuberance for our salvation. Those things are good, but that is at the end of the train, at the beginning of the train, at the head of the train. The engine that drives it all is Jesus Christ. It is truth. It is true Christian doctrine. And if you, if you mix that up, you're in danger of the same thing that these false teachers were in danger of. You're in danger of having your emotions drive your faith, drive your doctrine. That's a dangerous place to be. We are nourished and knit together with a growth that comes from God holding fast to Jesus. Not through seeking the next religious high. <clears throat> now, I'm going to have to uh, kind of go quickly through these next passages because uh, I'm running just a little bit low on time. But if it seems like I'm kind of breezing through this next bit, it's because I kind of am. So uh, let's look at verses 20 through 23. It says, 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, and remember that means the enemy, Satan, and his demons who influence these false teachings. If you have died to those things, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Meaning that, why are you, you're, uh, when it says that uh, uh, as if you were still alive in the world, it means not that uh, since you're alive right now and, and you're actually here and alive right now, it means if you, are, uh, if you are, why are you acting as if you are still your old self that you've died to? Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These, indeed, have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. And so verse 20 is actually pretty straightforward, right? Verse 20. He says to the Colossian church, if you are dead to these things, if you have died to your sin, if you have died to the power and influence of the enemy, why are you even considering? Why are you even the slightest bit tempted to pursue living your life according to these regulations and rules that are being foisted upon you by men, by human beings? And then in verse 23, Paul does admit That these things, these man-made religions and asceticism and and legalism, they they have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of wisdom. I mean, it, it sounds right to us at times that if you add up enough physical negatives, if you add up enough physical negatives, you will get a spiritual positive. But God's math doesn't work that way. If you, if you avoid uh, enough things and deprive yourself, you'll become more holy. It can sometimes seem to make sense to us. But ultimately, Paul says in verse 23 that it has no value whatsoever. It has no power in stopping the indulgences or, or the desires and passions of the flesh. None. Now, as I try to wrap up this sermon kind of begs a question, right? Why? Why do these things, why does asceticism and legalism and this harshness to the body have no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh? You're, you're depriving your, yourself of, of the flesh, right? So it seems like they would, they would have some sort, of, uh, some sort of value in putting to death or, or kind of defeating the indulgences of the flesh. It seems to make sense, but Paul says they don't. So, so why is that? Well, one answer is because they are devoid of Jesus, right? That's the Sunday school answer, Jesus, like we just talked about. But I also believe another similar way to answer the question can be found in Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23. I'm using the NIV translation here, but it says, Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. So in other words, we live out of our hearts. Right? We live out of our hearts. What is in our hearts comes out. What the root system of our hearts are dug into is what will flow from us. It is how we will react to the world. It is what will direct our thoughts and our emotions and our words. We literally live out of our hearts. Now, Jesus restated this truth in Matthew 15, 18. You remember that? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? The heart. And this defiles a person. And so the reason that mere legalism and asceticism cannot truly fix the problem of sin or the passions of the flesh, why it cannot truly fix your addictions, your anger, your sexual lust, your habitual lying, your ungratefulness, your unforgiving attitude, and so on, is because it cannot penetrate into the heart. The solution to our desires of the flesh The solution to that problem, the the solution to our sin problem, doesn't lie simply in changing our outward behavior. That's the focus of legalism and asceticism. The only true solution is not 
uh, is not is not being uh, attempting to try to uh, change yourself from the outside in. That's not the solution. But the true solution is that you need to be changed from the inside out. The true solution to all of our fleshly and sinful indulgences or desires, the true solution to our addictions, to our anger, our bitterness, our fear, and all the rest comes only from Jesus Christ who can cut away from our sinful, or cut away from our hearts, our sinful natures and create in us a new nature. It is only Jesus who can truly set us free from our fleshly desires from our indulgences of the flesh. That is why these man-made philosophies that ultimately center on the self and your own willpower or even extra religious experiences are of no value. They're bankrupt. They have no ability to penetrate past the flesh and change the heart. That is something only Jesus can do. And so if you want to experience true change in your life, it must start in the heart. And true heart change doesn't come from following a list of rules and trying to look more religious than the next guy. It comes from worshiping Jesus above all else. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are told day in and day out Lord, that if we want to experience change in our lives, then we, we need to do this or we need to do that. We need to abstain from this. We need to abstain from that. Or we're even told that in order to, to truly be a, a believer, Lord, that we must follow this list of rules. But Lord, you say no. You say that it is only by grace that we are saved, through faith in your Son that we are saved. Lord, if, if a, following a list of rules is, is something that could have saved us, there would have been no point for your Son. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you remind us of your grace. Lord, when we fall into that, that trap of, of thinking that we have to follow these, these rules and regulations, Lord, Lord, help us remember and feel and dwell in your grace. But, Lord, I also pray, God, that you protect us from swinging too far the other way and thinking that, that we don't need to follow you, that we don't need to seek after you, that we don't need to obey your commands, Lord. But we should have the motivation for those things, not be salvation, that we do these things in order to save ourselves, but Lord, but that, they, that they flow from a heart of gratitude, that they flow from a heart of, of love for you. So Father, we just we thank you, God. We thank you that we do not have a works-based faith. We thank you for your grace. Pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.